Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this interview, we're going to hear from Jeff Wald, founder of WorkMarket, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to efficiently and compliantly organize, manage, and pay freelancers. Jeff is also the author of the newly released The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform, which was eventually purchased by Salesforce. Jeff began his career in finance, serving as managing director at activist hedge fund Barrington Capital Group, a vice president at Israeli venture firm Glen Rock, and various roles in the M&A group at JP Morgan. He is an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private boards of directors. Jeff holds an MBA from Harvard University and an MS and a BS from Cornell University. He's also formerly served as an officer in the auxiliary unit at the New York Police Department. Jeff, it's my honor to welcome you to the show today. Bill, thank you so much for having me. I am super excited uh, for this conversation. So beyond my wee introduction there, Jeff, please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and what do you get up to? So, you know, I have started a few technology companies. Some have worked well, like Work Market, which uh, we were able to sell to ADP two years ago. And, you know, some have not worked so well. My first one failed miserably and basically bankrupted me. So I've had a, a number of ups and downs in, in, the startup, in the startup world. Now tell me a bit about your new book, Jeff. So I believe that was released uh, as we record this just a few days ago on, on June the 2nd, and it's called The End of Jobs. Tell us about it and what inspired you to write it. It was released just a few days ago. And I got to tell you, Bill, it's been so exciting. The response to the book, we hit number one on all of Amazon's HR categories, which was super fun. And I, I wrote the book because as a startup entrepreneur in the HR tech space, it was getting very frustrating when I would speak at conferences, when I would be on panels, to hear people make, make projections, make predictions about the future of work that had very little basis in evidence. I am a database decision maker, and so I like to study history, I like to study data and data patterns, and those two things are, in my opinion, the best way to come up with high probability predictions about the future. And so I wrote the book to give some frameworks to the discussion around the future of work, and it's been a very, very exciting process. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Now, the the world has witnessed uh, three-step functions in technological change, Jeff, Uh, mechanization, electrification and computerization. With each of these technological breakthroughs, the power balance between companies and workers shifted heavily towards the the companies. This takes me back to when I studied politics and and Gramsci and whatnot, actually. Uh, As we enter the fourth great leap forward in in technology with robots and AI, we we face the first services revolution. The power balance will will again shift massively to, to companies as as new technologies drive productivity increases and in the service industry, much as the last three industrial revolutions transformed manufacturing. In your opinion, what lessons can we learn from the past three industrial revolutions and the current state of the labor market? 
Well, the important thing is that we learn those lessons, is that we study those past three, we study the data. And here, here are my conclusions. My conclusions are that every single time as the power balance shifted massively to companies, people would predict, oh, wow, you know, there are not going to be any jobs left, society is going to crumble. And every time those predictions were incorrect. As we stand on the precipice of this next change, we are not at a shortage of people making the same predictions. Oh, it's technological unemployment. It's the doom, the doom of, of mankind. And I would caution those people to look at history and what has happened where every single time we've ended up with more jobs with a higher standard of living. I would caution those people to look at the data on the component tasks resident in every single job that happens in the economy today and how many of those component tasks are repetitive high volume tasks and therefore can be done by a robot. So when we look at those kinds of things, it starts to change our predictions about the future. We start to see, well, maybe we will end up in a much better place. However, one of the most important lessons of history is that while we do end up every single time in a place with more jobs, with a higher standard of living, the transitions are difficult. Workers do transition poorly, companies do it even worse, and society doesn't do transition well at all. And so as you think about this power balance shifting, and you think about the counterbalancing forces that will rise, and you think about what the conclusion might be, a place of more jobs, a higher standard of living, don't forget that these transitions are difficult. And the transition that we are facing while I am predicting in the book, no net job losses over the next 20 years, there will be job losses in some industries and there will be jobs gained in others. And we as a society are going to have a difficult time if we are not focused on the retraining and the reskilling of workers in declining industries and helping them move to industries that are growing. It is something we have not done well in the past and as we think about this next transition, that might be the greatest lesson that we should learn from history. Yeah, we, we speak quite a lot on this show, Jeff, about uh, the importance, particularly at the moment, um, of, 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 of reskilling employees. Uh, there are a lot of people out there right now who are concerned about holding on to their jobs and, and, and remaining relevant. I, I'd be keen to hear from you, though. Uh, what, what, about, what about the soft skills? What, 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 are the, what are some of those soft skills that will be augmented and supplemented by by AI over over the next few years. If if someone's an expert negotiator, I'm 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 assuming, for example, you can't you can't remove that human connections component to to a business development role or a leadership role. Of course not. Of course not. There are a lot of predictions on jobs growing that require creativity, that require empathy, that require customer service. There is, I mean. Bill, here's, here's an easy way to think about it. The technology has existed to replace every waiter and waitress in the world today. That technology has existed. You could very easily have an iPad or some similar device on the table when you walk in. You can click what you want. The order gets sent electronically to the kitchen, and even a robot, a little robot, you know, could bring it out to you. But it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened because people like that human interaction. 
They like saying, oh, well, what do you recommend? I'm kind of in the mood for this. And we are nowhere near a robot being able to have that kind of interaction. An AI software program have that kind of interaction. And so that gives me hope that even as technologies come on board that could replace those repetitive high volume tasks, the dynamic of customer service, the competitive environment, and a host of other things mean that it won't happen that quickly. Okay, thank you very much. Now, I'd love to hear from you. How, how will we renegotiate the, the social contract to ensure fairness for workers as we go through these changes so that we can set clear rules for companies and provide stability for, for society? And I just want to throw something else in there as well, Jeff. Um, you, you've spoken a lot in the past about freelancers and the gig economy. There's a lot of people out there right now who are freelancers in the gig economy. Where do they fit in in ensuring that there's a social contract for them? Over the course of our three industrial revolutions, there are the three counterbalancing forces that tend to rise up and help workers regain some semblance of power in the power dynamic between workers and companies. And those are regulation, the social safety net, and unions. And those three mechanisms have helped workers to bring things somewhat back into balance. Now, as you think about the state of each of those three right now, as we enter this new age, this fourth industrial revolution, as some are calling it, or first services revolution, which I call it in the book, those three are, not, are in a perilous state. But I want you to think maybe about the Fight for 15 movement in the United States. Now, that movement started in, a, uh, in the union in Seattle. The SEIU's union in Seattle helped start that movement, but it became a grassroots activist-driven, non-union activist-driven campaign taken up by workers all across the United States. And it has subsequently moved forward on the national stage, a debate about a 15-hour minimum wage. And at, in several states, legislation has already been passed to slowly move towards a $15 an hour minimum wage. And so that is an example of some of those counterbalancing forces because the union or activist movements of workers are helping to change regulation, which helps swing some power back to workers. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm loving this take, by the way. Uh, power to the people. <laughs> um, let, let's, uh, let, let's now talk a bit about um, uh, what are some of the possible big pros and cons to a future where, where companies and employers are are relying more heavily on technology, Jeff. Our audience here are made up of uh, lots of different demographics, but uh, many, many of them are HR pros. So uh, with, with that in mind, how will AI continue to augment and involve the roles of, of leaders and, and also HR people? We just don't know yet, Bill. And I'll point to the example of the ATM. So the ATM came to prominence in the 90s and very quickly was in almost every bank branch by 1995. In 1995, there were 500,000 bank tellers in the United States. And people that predict the doom of, of the worker because of robots said, oh my gosh, that's it, no more bank tellers are gonna be needed. But what happened? Those bank tellers came out from behind the glass. They were given iPads or a similar technology. And they were focused on more customer service and support. They were upselling mortgage products, investment products, and a host of other things for the banks. And 
employment of tellers in the United States over that over the next 30 years grew by 20%. We now have 600,000 bank tellers in the United States of America. And then people look at that example and they say, oh, well, clearly this is an example of cobots. The idea that robots or AI are taking these repetitive high volume tasks, in the case of bank tellers, the taking in of money and the giving out of money, and they are allowing that worker to perform higher value, higher value tasks, tasks more associated with customer service and support and human contact. Okay, maybe that's the answer to that question too. But the number of bank branches in the United States nearly doubled over that period. And the number of tellers per branch went from 21 down to 13 tellers per branch. And so when people try to draw simple conclusions, and say, oh, because a robot can do this, then therefore that will happen. It just belays the complexity of the labor resource planning that goes into corporate decision-making. That involves things like cost, of course, the prevailing technologies, the competitive dynamic, the customer relationships that you wanna drive, a series of other technologies in the case of banking, online banking and its impacts. And then of course, the regulatory environment because it was banking deregulation in the United States that actually ended up having the biggest impact on employment in the banking sector, not technology. And so it, is, it just shows the complexity of decision-making and it leads us to the answer of, we just don't know how all these things are gonna play out. What we need to do is study the data and watch and draw our conclusions so that we can best plan for this evolving future. And continuing on the the note of of, of uncertainty at the moment, your your book's pretty timely because it, at least it offers uh, macro insights. It gives us some comfort of, of the bigger picture, I guess. But there's greater uncertainty right now, Jeff, because of of COVID nineteen and all, all the effects that that's had, uh, not just on our personal lives, but but in work as well, of course. And and lots and lots and lots of people around the world are now out of work or they're, they're worried about what their positions will look like uh, very soon. Well, what has COVID-19 done, though, to, to accelerate the, the change of traditionally human-operated functions in, in the office and, and the ways that humans communicate with each other? How, how, how has it actually accelerated that, that, that march towards augmentation and, and the, the rise of AI? The general thought is that COVID-19 is accelerating a series of existing trends. Robotics and AI implementation is certainly one of them. We can certainly imagine the conversation at a board level to say, well, let's look at that cost-benefit analysis again of engaging all those robots because now we need to include as a benefit, the robots don't get sick because if we all had robots in all of our stores, maybe they'd be open. So we don't know yet if the adoption of robots and AI will increase above the about 15% annual rate that we've seen. We'll have to wait and see. What we do know is that remote work as a very important part of the future of work, that has very clearly accelerated. That's the most tangible example. Prior to the pandemic, 3% of the workforce was classified as remote workers. During the pandemic, at its height, about 40% of the US workforce was working remote. Post the pandemic, we now predict about 8% of the workforce will work remote. So if the pandemic doesn't happen, the 3% prior to the pandemic maybe grows to 4% over the next 10 years. Instead, we're gonna to get to 
it is a substantive change. And it's a change that is very unusual in the history of labor statistics, as your listeners will well know. You don't see labor statistics change in that huge a step that quickly. And the reason for it is that companies have been very resistant to put in place the policies, the procedures, and the infrastructure that would enable remote work at scale. And the pandemic forced them to do it. Now, it forced them to do it with a bunch of security holes, and you're going to see uh, cybersecurity concerns certainly peak. People think Zoom bombing is a problem. That is, that is the least of our concerns when we think about the cybersecurity risks of everybody accessing their corporate systems outside of the corporation's four walls. But the infrastructure, as patchy as it may have been, was put in place. It's being patched as we speak. And now that genie's out of the bottle. And the old school manager that used to say, oh, yeah, I know all the studies say that remote workers are more productive, they're more engaged, they're happier, they have lower attrition rates, they cost me less. Yeah, I've seen all those studies, but I still think that productivity equals presence, and I just think magic happens when people are in the office together. That person now gets to see that magic can happen when people are not in the office together that down the, down the hall, on another floor, or halfway around the world, everyone can still be on the same team. And so that is something that is a substantive change that COVID-19 has, has forced upon the world of work. And it's certainly the most tangible in terms of what we can see from the data in the near term. Let's now talk a little bit about uh, another really cool aspect of, of, of your book, I think, and, and that's um, that's the Future of Work prize competition. Uh, can you tell the listeners uh, what is it and why you decided to launch it? I, I understand that you put forward a $10 million prize for whichever of the, and you've got some incredible luminaries, uh, the, the writers in your book is the most accurate in their vision of when we get to 2040. I obviously am a huge fan of data-driven decision-making. I like looking at evidence, historical trends, and using those to extrapolate out into the future. But I wouldn't pretend that my way is the best way, and it certainly is not the only way. In researching the book, I had the opportunity to speak with hundreds of the men and women that are shaping the future of work. Business leaders, policy leaders, union leaders, civil society leaders, and the idea came to me to say, you know what, what would they write in a short essay on what the world of work looks like in 2040? And how many of them can I get to write for the book? And I happen to hear the person that uh, came up with the X Prize speak at a conference and was just blown away by him. He's an amazing, amazing person. And I thought, wow, I can do something similar here in the world of work. So I personally put up $10 million and then uh, went about and asked some of the people that I admire the most. Everybody I asked said yes. Now everybody I asked did not complete the, the, uh, the competition. They did not either get their company's approval. You know, some people are senior executives, CEOs in some cases, but that still doesn't mean they can do whatever they want. They have to get the approval of either their managers or their board to submit in this essay, or they just couldn't complete it. You know, they were too busy. And uh, I would say, look, the deadline's here, the deadline's there. And I will certainly admit that there were a few people that I kept pushing the deadline for because I really wanted them to get uh, to get their pieces in. 
but uh, about 30 people completed it. About 40 people said that they would do it. Of the 40 that were asked, about 30 people completed it, and the 20 best are in this book and are the official competitors in the Future of Work Prize. And I could not be more excited, could not be more proud of what they've produced. Some people wrote as letters to their kids. Some people wrote it as a short story. Nobody took me up on my uh, challenge to do it as a haiku or a series of haikus. But their visions for what they wrote are vastly different. We have some people that are very dystopian and think, wow, the robots and AI, they're going to totally rip apart society. There are going to be no workers needed, and then it's going to be very terrible. We have some writers that think, oh my gosh, the world is going to be amazing in 2040, and robots are going to do all our mundane tasks for us, and we'll be able to focus on leisure and family and science and art, and it's going to be wonderful. And I've got one writer that basically wrote, no, nah, it's going to be the same. Yeah, there'll be a few more robots here, a few more than there, but uh, for the most part, it's the same. No, nothing's really going to change. And so they're really all over the map, and it is by far my favorite part of the book, not only because these writers are so amazing and the pieces are all so interesting, but also because I didn't have to write it. And so that was a solid half of the book that uh, other people produced. Jeff, I'm assuming that your contributors, including, by the way, listeners, uh, Johnny C. Taylor Jr., who's the president at Sherm, I'm assuming, Jeff, that they know where to find you in 2040, right? They'll, they'll have your address. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do know where to find me. The money has been set aside into an account that, under all reasonable scenarios, will grow in, you know, assuming a 3 or 4% rate of return will grow uh, into the appropriate money. So it is, it is out of my hands already. <laughs> uh, Jeff, we're coming towards the end of this interview already. Before we wrap things up, how, how can our listeners connect with you? And how can, can they get a copy of your new book, The End of Jobs? Well, the book did go on sale just a few days ago, and we are super excited again on the reception and hitting number one in all of Amazon's HR categories. So it is available at Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com, Apple Books, I would say at bookstores all over the world, but unfortunately bookstores are not open, but it will be in bookstores all over the world soon enough. Anyone can reach out to me, uh, especially your audience on LinkedIn, anybody that wants to talk about the future of work, talk about different HR tech. I am going to be building another HR tech company in the coming uh, years. I haven't figured out exactly my timing yet, but I always love to connect with HR leaders and talk about their needs and, and the different things that I'm working on. And I do post uh, very regularly on Twitter all the very interesting things that I am reading about the future of work, pieces that I think are incredibly thoughtful uh, from places like the World Economic Forum, from Deloitte, from E&Y, and from other just tremendous thinkers on the future of work. So you can certainly follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Wald. And please connect and reach out and please buy the book. I would love to hear everybody's thoughts, especially this audience. Jeff, it's been an absolute honor having you on today. I'd love to get you back again. I'm probably going to pitch to you at some point to speak at one of my events. Um, but for today, um, it, it, it just leaves me to say thank you so much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Bill, thank you so much. And let me tell you, your show, love it. And so anywhere you want me to be, consider it done. I'll be there. Awesome. And this is being recorded. So boom. Okay. But we've got, <laughs> we've got Jeff in. Um, and that just leaves me to say for, for our listeners, until next time, stay safe. 
Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.